This is a crowd podcast. Welcome to the Fertility Podcast, where we aim to educate and empower you on your fertility journey, whatever stage you're at. I'm Natalie Silverman, a broadcaster and fertility coach, and I had my son after successful fertility treatment. And I'm Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant. We'll be your trusted guides, chatting each week with experts and people just like you to let you know you're not alone. Let's dive in. Welcome to another episode of the Fertility Podcast. How has your week been, Kate? You're looking very glamorous as we are chatting. Glamorous and a bit bronzed. Of course, still? a bit bronzed. I can't really tell. <laughs> my, my tan. I can't really tell with my the tan light. Well, that, that is all brown. That is all brown. It hasn't quite gone yet, but with this rubbish weather, I think it will be going very quickly. Have you uh, not got any tan lines then? Is that what you've just admitted, that you have all no, brown, have no white lines. bits? No. No, what you can see. Clearly, I'm not flashing you my white bits. <laughs> Uh, how's your week been yeah it's been good I had a similar coming back from a break and then getting ready for back to school I want to just talk a moment about back to school because it is what's going on I just actually saw a really interesting post that Kat trying years had shared we've got an episode coming up with Kat before the end of this series actually and I never put the pictures up really of um Phoenix my son going back to school and obviously this time of year there's a flurry of it on social media and and, mm. and of course it's a lovely thing to to share but it's so triggering and Kat had kind of mentioned that in her post and I just wanted to say if you're seeing lots of these kind of pictures on your socials and they are feeling a little triggering or more than a little then just take the time away from social because it will stop you know the picture by the front door with the oversized I mean I did just dress Phoenix in an oversized jumper he was adamant he wanted to wear it it did look funny that it was drowning him he looked like you know like what film is it where the kid oh honey I shrunk the kids where the kids shrunk the jumper into the clothes <laughs> but just take a step away from socials if you don't want to see it because yeah we've got you back here just wanted to just wanted to bring that up before we go into what we're going to be talking about, I just want to pick up on one other thing that Kate and I have been talking about this week. Because um, Kate, you shared that really interesting post about blood tests and the NHS. Yeah. Do you want to just explain a bit about it? Because I know you'd um, shared it on your Instagram. And so annoyingly, I was trying to repost it on my Instagram and my Instagram's not working. So I can't even share it in my stories. Hopefully uh. by the time this episode goes out, um, I have shared it. But you've shared it on your grid. I have. Basically, there seems to be a shortage of blood test vials and NHS England have um, notified all GPs and doctors and um, specialist nurses that actually there is this shortage and they need to hold back on various testing. Um, And sadly, one of those is going to be some fertility blood testing. So it might be more difficult for you to actually get a blood test done from your GP at the moment. Now, we're we're hoping that the um, NHS England, they're working on a solution and we're hoping that by the kind of middle to end of September, this will no longer be an issue. But right now it could be. So don't be surprised if you struggle to get a blood test from your GP or from the hospital. And this will also include things like vitamin D as well. They've actually identified vitamin D, which obviously we know is important for fertility. So this is where really we need to be kind of thinking out the box a little bit and perhaps looking at where you can access home testing because there's certainly a lot of that about now. So you have got access to that. And we'll put links in the episode for this, for these show notes because we've spoken with Medichex, who Kate does a lot of work with. Mm -hmm. We've also spoken with Fertility Health, who are two of the options that do offer these kind of tests. So we'll make sure there's links to that. Getting ready for the end of the series. We're in September. We're actually chatting on my wedding anniversary. It's my wedding anniversary today. Oh, 
happy wedding yeah. anniversary. How many years Nine is that? Nine years. Nine years. Yeah. Oh, lovely. So for a oh, congratulations. Bit of dinner. Bit of dinner tonight. Now, we're heading to the end of the current series of the Fertility Podcast. And what we're going to be doing in these remaining episodes is signposting you to more of our previous episodes, which we've done through this series. But rest assured that once this series finishes, we're going to continue to signpost you to all the many episodes that we've got that we might have touched on in this series, which was a a journey through what we thought you might expect if you're trying and struggling to conceive. But we've got loads of other conversations. So in this episode, we're talking about donor conception. We're focusing in particular on donor sperm. And it's such a big conversation. We've covered it in the past and we will link to those episodes because we've spoken to egg donors. We've had organisations that can help match you with donors both in the UK and abroad. And we've talked with you and heard your stories about having treatment abroad, whether it be with a donor egg or a donor sperm. There's a multitude of reasons. And the idea of using a donor to make your baby can take a lot of time to get your head around. It's so important that you talk it through and you get support. I mean, it's such a big conversation, isn't it, Kate, when it comes to who feels what, what's the right thing to feel, whether you tell other people, because as soon as you involve family members, they can give their concerns. Yeah, family members will always have an opinion. And I think, as I I recommend to my patients when they're considering this, is, is make the decision between the two of you before you really go off and talk to family and friends, because otherwise you'll find that their kind of own opinions are going to impact on really your decision. So make that decision and then you can then announce it to the world if that's what you feel comfortable with. And that's why we also want to signpost you to some of the uh, brilliant organisations that can guide you because they help when you are faced with those more challenging conversations. We've spoken with the Donor Conception Network in the past who have been around for a pretty long time. They've got all sorts of documents and different like resources that you can have access to. And more recently, the brilliant Becky Cairns, who is at Defining Mum on Instagram and who I work with, with My Fertility Matters at Work initiative, she's launched her Path to Parent Hub, which is after her own experience of having three her three daughters through donor conception. She's been working tirelessly to provide webinars as well as an amazing support network to help answer the many questions that come with donor conception. And I know that since she's launched, she's got, I think it's over 350 people in her network. So it just goes to show that you're so not alone in going through this, which is why we really want to make sure you will be able to find people you can talk to about this. Now, I've had conversations where people have said that they wanted to go ahead with it or they were talking about it and their partner was dead against it. And we also know that within certain ethnic groups, especially in the UK, it's really hard to find donor eggs. And we need so much more awareness on this. We need to encourage more people to donate. I think we probably need a podcast or podcast series on this Mm. issue, which is something that we can address in the future. But we're actually going to be talking about donor sperm in this episode have you had many conversations obviously not including the ones that you know we've had for the podcast but have you had many clients Kate that where you've had to talk about this interestingly no not donor sperm donor egg yes donor egg is becoming a lot more of the norm and I'm having a lot of conversations and talking about different options with my patients but donor sperm no very 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 rarely in fact I don't think I actually have um, yet so that's really interesting isn't it really interesting that that's not this commonplace. I think as well maybe the the kind of um the the focus is kept more between the couple because it's less talked about um I mean in the donor egg conversations is there any trend in age is it normally over 35 that 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 the women are, are, are considering donor egg? 
Um, I think that's certainly the norm, but obviously then you have um, ladies who have had premature ovarian insufficiency yeah. and therefore they're going to be like Becky, for example, um, that happened to her at a very young age. So we do see women that are considering it at a, at a younger age, but in, in the main, it's women that are later on in life, I'd say late 30s, early 40s, that actually they're then considering that perhaps after they've had failed IVF cycles with their own eggs. Well, we're first going to hear from J.R. Silver, who is a guy that we chatted to about a book that he'd written. And you'll hear him explain about how the diagnosis of the BRCA1 gene led him to have more fertility tests and then ultimately having to use a sperm donor. So have a listen to his story. So we're going to welcome J.R. Silver, who's dad of two and the author of a lovely new illustrated children's book called Sharing Seeds to the Fertility Podcast. Welcome, J.R. Thank you and thank you for having me. First up, what we want to do just to kind of set the scene a bit is talk about your diagnosis as you were having to have tests ahead of even thinking about your fertility due to the BRCA gene being prominent in your family, weren't you? So if I go back to 2013, before my wife and I were even looking into our fertility, options as it were we'd only been married in October 2012 and unfortunately in in spring of 13 my older sister got diagnosed with a very aggressive form of breast cancer at which point we sort of my older sister and I've got two younger sisters as well who unfortunately do not have the gene but both of us got tested for all four of us got tested for the BRCA1 gene because my father around that time he had he realised that there was a line of females in his family who had passed away fairly young, and I think it had been suggested to him to get tested. So as a result of my sister and I both realising we had the BRCA1 gene, my sister, very unfortunately, was not able to do anything with that information, but sadly, nine months later, she passed away after a, a very brave fight, but yes, leaving a fantastic husband and two young daughters who are now little bit older as it were so this was the end of 2013 but going into 2014 having had sort of a year to digest the information insofar as it could impact our future fertility related decisions we actually went to a central London clinic to find out more about what I think was called the acronym is PGD yeah which essentially was to get guidance as to whether actually with me having inherited the BRCA1 gene how feasible it would be for us to essentially take sperm from me and almost have it analysed before we went to sort of the IVF stage and make sure we were only putting healthy sperm, which I think would be one in two, forward for sort of embryo, sort of crystallisation, transfer and so on. The follow-up to that, though, was that we got sent for fertility tests. And uh, my wife still is very, very healthy. But actually, I was told in no uncertain terms, I think in May of that year, by my GP, whose bedside manner is not always the friendliest, but he told me in no uncertain terms that I had zero sperm. So not just a small amount of sperm or slow swimmers, but just zero sperm. So they then send you off for more tests just to confirm a diagnosis as it were but that was confirmed shortly thereafter i went to see a urologist as well so one of the leading sort of london urologists and we just wanted to try and better understand what had caused the infertility as it were and i think what still confuses me is i think my diagnosis is called non-obstructive azuspermia but the way it was explained to me and maybe i never quite got my head around it but I didn't engage at the time was that 
probably from my teenage years, I'd had a, what they refer to as a large grade three varicocele. Varicocele, yeah. Varicocele. And as a yeah. result of that vein being so prominent, it effectively stopped my sperm from traveling to a place where they needed to be to be at the right temperature. The sad reality is of that part of our fertility journey is we did two operations on me later that year and then halfway through the next year to try and retrieve sperm from the testes. When you're given all this information, that's a, mm. an awful lot to take in, isn't it? You've had a, this diagnosis that you're not producing any sperm. You've you've been told you've got a varicocele. Were you, other than the kind of the physiological medical side of it, were you offered any emotional support in terms of how you could process that information at that point? Or were you just given that information and kind of told to go on go on your way and then sort it out emotionally yourself how did that play out from my perspective look we've had a very difficult year anyway with what my older sister had gone through and losing her kind of meant that this fertility setback when it then did happen it's not that it took a back seat but it losing my sister gave it context actually i know some maybe everyone feels like that i almost always thought you know what when it comes to being a man and stepping up i don't know what it was i was you know i'm quite average in stature I've never been a, an alpha male should we say so I wasn't surprised when I got this diagnosis because my wife and I've been trying for a while because had no luck as well and you just start to think oh maybe it's my fault maybe it's my fault and I just wasn't surprised I, was, well, I guess what does surprise me is statistically to have a BRCA1 gene and azuspermia I'm there must be a few of us out there in the world, but I suspect, mm. there's, not, I suspect there's not many of us. So yeah. I don't think there I, is. <laughs> I don't know if I'm a statistical anomaly. I did get support. My right. wife was fantastic. My close family members were fantastic. Those I've chosen to talk to close to me have always been really supportive. My wife and I have anyway, because we went to see Hannah, the yeah. Jewish fertility charity in, gosh, I think that was towards the end of 2014. Primarily because someone said it's worth talking to them just because of people in the community, but maybe I'll just put you in touch. The two reasons we didn't go to them, but what actually came about was A, counselling. So we still see a fantastic counsellor there. And two, they've actually given us quite a bit of funding along the way because a lot of our treatments have been privately funded. So, you know, to answer, I think, the question, I've I've always felt really well supported and able to talk to people about it. I've not, I don't believe I've struggled mentally or physically as a result of this sort of stuff. And we've come, you know, we've come full circle. We've got two young children and we are, we are so incredibly happy with our family as it were. I think the fact that you've talked about the fact that counselling has been present um, almost highlights the proactive way that you've gone into this because of that support maybe being there throughout it has been more of a guidance rather than something that you needed when everything started to get too much. Not saying that it inevitably will, but explain what happened next, because obviously what we're talking about is then having to go through the process of finding a sperm donor in order for you and your wife to have have children. So can you just talk about that experience and how it was for the pair of you? By that point, I've been taking a fairly light dosage of antidepressants, which I still take now. Maybe that just met, enabled me also to take the fertility setback better in my stride because I think some people like pro-therapy or pro-medication in my case actually I've had a bit of both but not maybe an over-reliance so that's there in the background as well yeah so to answer that question in terms of use of donor sperm in itself in a strange way I think we quite enjoyed it so once we got our heads around the fact that this was our preferred option we weren't going to go down the adoption route we wanted to have a child naturally through my wife and IVF it was actually quite good fun. I know that may sound a little bit crude, but 
Well, I actually spoke to a guy in a previous episode who talked about it being a bit like online dating. Well, yes. So my wife did not want to see pictures, but I was very clear that that was almost one of my requirements in that what I didn't want to do is having looked at loads of bios online and be told someone, because we're both quite fair in background and, you know, you just have an idea of wanting someone to be close to me in replica. Yeah. And I'm so glad we looked at pictures because so many of those people, well, said they were of ecstatic quality, were nowhere near what I have in mind my son would look like whereas we now have two children and in large part we pick those donors because of the pictures which were available and obviously you've talked about how you've had lots of support throughout the process when you were initially diagnosed and how you felt that you could talk about your diagnosis reasonably openly was that the same then for choosing a sperm donor and making that decision or was it more difficult for you both once you decided that that was the way you were going to create your family yeah so the sperm donor still is a delicate issue in that I think when we first went down that route I think there's a lot of stigma historically associated with that and I think we were very much in two minds about telling anyone but then we actually went to the donor conception network amongst others and actually they're very much very ethos they don't tell you what to do is actually in this day and age it's much better to tell the children from a young age via reading material so they don't have any surprises later in life for medical reasons, whatever. Absolutely. What There's that, been quite a lot of research know. that's been done into that, which shows it is, you know, ideally, if you can, it is much better to to tell your children from a very young age. So, yeah, I completely agree with that. But the dilemma there is what close family members thought in that both my parents, my wife's parents, were, I think, a little surprised at how open we were going to be. Sort of, and not that we were going to tell every Tom, Dick and Harry, but we've always told people who've come into our lives or been close to us and we've just felt comfortable telling them. And now with this book out, it's again, it's similar in that it's published anonymously, but it doesn't mean I'm not telling people who I choose to tell about it. So that family, not pressure, but concern, was that something that played on your mind a bit more than you thought it would? Yeah, it's definitely been there in the background in that, you know, we talked about the BRCA1 gene and historically sort of maybe families not sharing information, which nowadays they would do. And I think we've all learned that, you know, sharing information is precious, whether it's in respect to the BRCA1 gene or whether it's using donor sperm. And there is no shame with it. And I think my family have actually got a lot more comfortable in that recently, my mother said, in respect of the book. Although they wouldn't tell anyone about it, if people heard in their community and came and spoke to them about it, they wouldn't deny all knowledge, if that makes sense. I, they would be receptive to it. And that, that is progress in a strange way. It may not sound like progress, but it is progress. I think there's a, a bit of a generational thing there as well, isn't there? That um, this donor sperm, whilst new to everybody, is still it's reasonably acceptable to us. But actually, a generation or two generations back, it's a completely different scenario. And it's just taking time to get used to that new idea really our concern with things now is actually it's for children as they get older what they do with the information presuming they're happy to tell people such as friends in the playground cousins what's how they're going to sort of be received and whether they're going to get teased as a result because we're very lucky to live in a time when you know IVF is advanced and everyone is a lot more accepting but we also know that there are some unpleasant people everyone can be unpleasant at times and you know, how are they going to deal with that? So 
it's it's an unknown space and one we never contemplated being in six, seven years ago. And I guess we're lucky to be here, but at the same time, we have to be very open-minded and supportive of our children as they grow up. And before we talk more about the book, JR, we, we talked about your community and we talked about that being Jewish community. And, and we're always interested to just explore the, the kind of pressures that we feel within different communities. And, you know, I've talked with Hannah before and there's mixed feelings, I think, within the the Jewish community about fertility education and awareness and that type of thing. And you mentioned how your mum said that she might not say something, but if someone in the community came to her, do you feel that being involved in the Jewish community, you know, I'm Jewish myself, I know how we, we talk and we don't talk about uh, other things, that that can be to the detriment when we're trying to deal with this type of topic? Yes, is probably the answer. But where we now live, Having only lived here for a few years, we've made a conscious decision not to tell too many of any people in our neighbourhood. So we've almost, although we're outside of our community being open with some people, we're deliberately not being within our community until the children are ready to start talking about it. And that's actually something that the book has actually forced us to think a little bit more carefully about because we, we kind of had stopped talking about it because the first year or 18 months we were talking to people about IVF and using donor sperm. And then it just kind of, the last few years, it's not really needed to tell anyone new if that makes sense. So obviously we moved to a new area. So now we've kind of parted again because, yeah, we do live in a community which is, it's not predominantly Jewish, but you'll know Natalie therefore, but it seems like it's predominantly Jewish, even though it's not. You see, the whole conversation about fertility issues, about donor conception, it's always needing this element of education. And that's why... Kate and I make the podcast that's why you've created your book and I'd love you to tell us a bit more about the book because it's a beautifully illustrated book it's a a story like you explained sharing the story and it's a children's book but I'm very aware and it's something that I've experienced personally that you are doing all of this work anonymously and I want to just get from you a bit more about how you feel personally about that do you feel you're really owning this or is it all you're ready to be owning at this point in time? When I first wrote something, it was very much over the summer, had a look online, ordered a couple of books, wasn't overly impressed with what I was reading to my son. And thought, because I've always liked working with children, and I thought I could probably do something. And then I wrote something, and then I shared it with a publishing friend, and she said, this is really good, you should partner with an illustrator, which is where I went. But then at that point, my wife said, just be careful at this point, because at the moment, you're planning on, you know, if you're actually self-publishers so you're going to do it in your own name because I don't think you should and I hadn't even thought about it my wife was a bit incredulously it hadn't crossed my mind but we then spoke over a few weeks after that about actually erring on the side of caution and publishing it anonymously because it still enables me to spread the message and own it but I can now do it under a, a second identity, certainly in the short term, I guess. I think just the advantage of this way is that it just means if one of our children growing up doesn't want to be associated with a book, I think it just better enables that flexibility for them. So you feel you'll remain anonymous with what you're doing? I think certainly in the short term, and the plan yeah, is yeah. medium and long term as well. And it means even when I'm talking to you guys, I'm happy to tell you my real first name. I'd you know, to even tell you my surname if you really wanted to know. But that's because I'm talking to people who, you know, I think would be discreet and have a genuine reason for wanting to know a bit more about my background. But no, I think officially, and you know, unless really persuaded otherwise, and I'm not sure someone would try and persuade us otherwise, it is a plan to keep the publication side of things anonymous. I think it's a really important kind of thing to to raise. And the reason that I was keen to see what you thought was that I um, 
published the podcast of the first year anonymously because I couldn't quite get my head around how I felt speaking publicly about something that was so private. And likewise, in terms of our son, what I thought is obviously different. We had fertility treatment. There wasn't the donor conception element involved. But I'm now at a point where... I'm now at a point where the, the conversation of, of how he came to be is is actually probably coming up a bit more. And so I think it's really interesting to just put out there that if you're listening to this, thinking of something that you might be wanting to do in terms of sharing your story, it doesn't matter. And we've spoken to a number of different people who have chosen to be anonymous because they want to protect their child. And I totally, totally respect you for your decision. And I think there's no right or wrong way to do this at all. For me personally, the reason I came out so to speak a year after making the podcast is because people were saying to me you're talking about this taboo topic all the time yet we don't know who you are and I think that there has to be a a place that you're comfortable doing it and you know like you say short long term you just do what feels right and there's no right or wrong with this it's just ultimately to help people educate and understand this better Whereas for children get a bit older if I'm doing other titles which are nothing to do with our own journey we may feel much more relaxed about sort of taking the the veil off because like you say I think this is not a taboo and we shouldn't be ashamed of saying who the ultimate author is yeah absolutely but well that's that's when the time is right isn't it just um finally JR what advice would you give to any other men that are perhaps processing this decision and really thinking to find out whether or not this is something that they want to pursue a lot of advice was almost foisted upon me which I wasn't opposed to hearing, but I didn't need the advice in the particularly actually following the donor conception network. Like my wife was keen for me to talk to X, Y, and Z who'd been through something similar and various other people had ideas of who I should be talking to, what I should be doing. My mum still to this day is sending me literature about maybe fathering my own child, which is so far down the line from where we've got to. But in terms of, yes, from I think we were lucky, I guess, that I was open-minded. And I guess it's very hard for me to give advice to every man out there. I think certainly stereotypically every man is different. I guess I would encourage those men to, I guess they're most likely going to be in a relationship. So there is a partnership aspect as well, because these things can be very testing on relationships. But I think it's a mutual thing. You need to work with your wife. You need to partner with your wife. I think you need to look at it as once you've got over the, if it'll be a personal setback and if you can sort of deal with the personal implications, I think you need to look at it as a shared project which if you can come through on the other side, I think more likely than not will make you much stronger as a couple and as a human being. And, you know, my my wife, when she's cross, she might ridicule me, but I do know most of the time she actually thinks I'm amazing because some of the things I've been through, and everyone will go through bad things in their life, that's the reality. But she says at the end of the day, there is no bigger man than me because of the way I've dealt with some things and accepted some things. So I guess my advice is just be open-minded and, uh, roll with the punches and don't be afraid what people may think of you. People will talk, not always nicely, but you can't control that. Good yeah. advice indeed. It is really sound advice. Um, JL, before um, we let you go, I just want to ask you one more thing. Where did you get your donor from? Was it a UK donor? Was it Europe, further afield? For us, it's a company based in Canada and the US simply because the Central London Fertility Clinic. We were with CRGH initially. Our second child was actually conceived more locally to us. We moved clinic just because we'd moved by that point. The CRGH and then the clinic in Canada and the US, they're called Zytec. And that was because that was who your clinic used or that was yes. where? They... Okay, fine. Yeah. And like I say, they, they had that ability to look at photos, bios, and it was really helpful to 
taking that part of the journey. So obviously we'll put links to JR's book, which is going to be such an amazing resource. I think it's so lovely. There's quite a number of different books kind of popping up within this community, isn't there, to help and support people. Mm. And uh, it was really lovely hearing, you know, how it had come to be from him. That whole piece about wanting to see the pictures and how he felt about wanting that similarity, it's something that you can't even get your head around having the concern that you might not connect with your child if it's not genetically linked to you. But it's such a big conversation. It's something that Becky's talked a lot about with her her daughters because of having a donor egg and hearing the male perspective. People often say, don't they, that children, the first child, first children look like their dad. And so I guess it must yeah. be such a, a pressing thing that, you know, hearing it makes you realise so much more. I think you can really understand it as well, can't you? Because with a woman who is perhaps considering donor egg, they're, they're then carrying that baby. They have the opportunity to bond with that baby during the pregnancy. But for men, if they're using donor sperm, they must feel even more removed from the situation. They don't have that opportunity that women with donor egg. And then obviously the whole epigenetics with a donor egg is a whole nother story. And we don't have time to go into that now, but that is an interesting area as well in how that the woman can um, actually change the donor egg or certain parts of the donor egg in utero to become more like her, which is fascinating. But I can really see that being an issue for a man, just feeling even more of an outsider. I wonder how much conversations there are about that very specific part of the experience um be interesting to know whether there's any guys Mm. that are talking about how they feel about that hopefully in some of the male support groups again which we can link to in uh in this episode if if and if you're listening and that's you, then we'd love to hear definitely, from you. Definitely, definitely. And we will be exploring more. I think the epigenetics conversation is something that definitely needs more airtime from us as we think yes. about our plans uh, for the future. We've got one more chat to share with you. And this is with the lovely Eloise Eddington, who is the founder of the Fertility Help Hub, which you may well be following online. It's a brilliant, brilliant resource. Eloise has worked, again, so hard. There are such brilliant people in this space doing so much from their own experience. And Eloise... Uh, went abroad for treatment, which you'll hear her explaining why. Her husband had Kleinfelter syndrome, which we've spoken about on the podcast. I will be linking to it. You're going to have a lot of different episodes to reference <laughs> in these show notes. But, you know, that's part and parcel of what we do. We want to make sure you've got lots lots to listen to. Um, so have a listen to Eloise as she talks about what happened and how they ultimately also ended up using donor sperm. So I'm delighted to welcome Eloise Eddington to the podcast. We were just both chatting about when we've both last spoken to each other because we've both been talking on our various platforms. We'll talk more about um, what Eloise is doing now in a moment because Eloise had treatment abroad and that's what I really wanted to talk to her about because that's what this episode is about. And in particular, Eloise went quite far afield because she went to America. So first of all, welcome, Eloise. Hi, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, we first met on um, on stage at the Fertility Show when you talked about this experience and you had treatment in America. Just explain about how you decided to go across the pond. So we went to New York City and the reason we did that was because we had a very quick diagnosis where my husband find, found out that he has Kleinfelter syndrome, which affects about one in 660 men, something like that. And he did a lot of research into urologists and we looked at the success rate between uh, the microtessi surgery, which is a sperm retrieval surgery under anaesthetic, under general anaesthetic. He looked at the different success rates in the UK and abroad 
and quickly found a surgeon, Dr. Schlegel, who works at Cornell, Wild Cornell. And we looked into process, timings, availability and costs, put everything together in a spreadsheet and soon realized that as this was our one shot of trying to get sperm, the costs weren't that different. So we went abroad because the success rate was around the 70% figure versus around the 30% figure at the time in the UK. Now, I will link to um, uh, episodes we've done about Kleinfelters because it is, a, 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 as Eloise said, a rare condition, but fascinating. And there's quite distinguishable signs, aren't there? Once you know what it is, in particular, is your husband very tall? Very tall. So, this, I mean, that's, that's just one. But uh, I will put that link because I think it's a really interesting thing for people to understand more about. So just tell me a bit about what your experience was like, because when I've heard from people that have been to Europe, obviously it's not that far. And so whilst New York isn't as far as other states in the States, could be it's still a lot logistically to consider isn't it 100 percent. i've always loved america i've always been drawn to america obviously new york is an amazing city so because we were needing to spend three to four weeks there because of my stimulation process and his uh, surgery in tandem with that i really was quite happy to spend my time there i mean um, of all the places yeah exactly exactly obviously it wasn't party central for me but it was still nice to be able to do things outside of the fertility treatment having taken time off work on leave to go and do it i think that the main thing i say to people when they're thinking about ivf abroad or treatment abroad is that it can be in a normal world when there isn't a pandemic. It can be quite stressful racing around, trying to get into the office on time. You know, sometimes, as you know, from all the stuff you do with IVF at work, um, the concern about if you haven't told your bosses being late, what are they going to think, the stress of that. So there was something quite appealing about taking time out to do it and not having that stress. And yes, America is far away and it did feel far away, but with a five hour time difference, it was quite easy to work out the logistics with the nurses and my specialist. And I'm quite an organized person. So is my father-in-law. So together we worked on very pretty color coded spreadsheets (laughs) to work out exactly what we were doing when. And when I went to tell my boss at the time about it, I printed out this massive A3 and and I had to, it was so big and so long for the four week period. Wow. I had to actually sellotape it together. Do you think you were and pitching I, him something different? He's like, what's this campaign? I don't know what well, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, so I did it as I would have done for the campaigns I used to work, work on at work. And I presented it to my boss and she said, you know, I've had friends who've gone through, through IVF, but I really didn't realize how much it entails. So it was a bit of an awareness piece as well, really. But that helped her and the team understand the the magnitude of it and why why we needed to go abroad and really why it was taking so long so you go and have the treatments and then you go all the way through the treatments and then obviously you you come home in the two-week wait or did you stay there for the two-week wait we didn't stay there for the two-week wait there really wasn't a need because they were just going to do a blood test at the end of it and there was nothing they could change at that point I did also go to a couple of clinics in the UK to support what I was doing in America. 
Um, I know that there is a lot of controversy about immunology treatment. The first cycle, I had no immunology treatment and it didn't work. When we got back to the UK and found out, I had a negative test on Easter Sunday. Mm. I just thought, which other ways can I prepare myself holistically? Because we literally bulldozed into the first round of IVF. And I just thought, because it was the male factor, it would work first time with donor sperm and it didn't. So then it was kind of like, oh my gosh, what if there's a problem with me? So went to um, Zeta West Clinic in London to have holistic care at the same time and also saw a counsellor and started running and really just taking care of my health, not drinking, having smoothies every day. And even if those things didn't help, they helped my mental well-being, knowing that I was giving it, excuse the pun, my best shot. And so we went back for a, trans- a frozen transfer for about three months later, and that's when it worked the first time. So just going back to the donor sperm conversation, that's obviously an American donor from an yes. American clinic. So what was that process like? So it's an American donor from uh, California Cryobank who are international. At the time, they had a choice between an open donor or uh, an anonymous donor. They now have more layers of that. So... Whilst we have an open donor who uh, our children can contact at 18, he's agreed to one form of contact, whereas they now have other donors who would agree to more than that. So we really don't know what's going to happen when the kids reach 18, because we have three now. All from the same donor. From the same donor, yeah. And that's another thing that people come to me all the time on the hub about is, how do you know how many vials to buy? What do you do if you want to expand your family and you don't want to be searching for a new donor and you want the siblings to be genetically connected. I had someone ask that the other day saying we've we found the perfect donor but they've only got one vial left of sperm and you need about one vial or straw per cycle of IVF. Um, although Cornell wanted to have two one two um on ice in case one didn't defrost, etc. And in terms of the donor conception process, I will make sure that you're fully aware of Eloise and her hub that she referred to um, because she's always doing brilliant Insta Lives and all sorts of conversations and there's all there's blogs and lots of content about these areas that are more intricate I don't want you to think that we're just brushing over it but in terms of you going then backwards and forwards each time what was that like I mean obviously you've done it once and from a cost logistics mentally I was scared about flying with needles I was scared about what letters I'd need for the airlines and if that got held up We had to cancel flights and rebook them and I thought it was covered under insurance and it wasn't. So we just had to buy them again, which was just like another sort of, oh, really just hit you whilst you're down. Um, We also had to, we went during different seasons. So it was different experiences looking back. The first time was so medically focused because I was going through the retrieval for the first time and the stimulation and my husband had this massive surgery which lasted five hours and his recovery was weeks. He went home in a wheelchair um, a week later and was bed bound with ice packs. So that was very medical and my father-in-law came out as well to support us. The next time we went back, when we had the frozen embryo transfer, was in June. And it was a heat wave. My husband was there to support me. We did a natural transfer, so there was no medication, just a bit of monitoring. It was his birthday at the time. So we just hung out and cycled around Central Park and had, you know, that felt more like a break than the first time because the two of the embryos were there. We didn't obviously know what was going to happen. I did think it was going to fail again, but 
that that was a much nicer experience and he wasn't having his surgery we knew we were obviously going with the donor because the embryos had been made and his recovery and the mental health element of his recovery obviously you've been backwards and forwards um was was that predominantly from you or were the clinic supportive the clinic were supportive but we had to go out and find that support ourselves whereas I know and this is five years ago so I know that now a lot of clinics do realize the need for that and they often offer that as part of their cycles or you can you can easily access it so I did have some emotional support but I had to go out and get it and my husband wouldn't do it with me so I was just sort of sobbing on this lovely counsellor in the States, you know, the day of my transfer and and that kind of thing, just because I really needed to speak to someone who wasn't involved in it, wasn't a family member and wasn't a friend. Yeah. And wasn't a husband. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. And and I want to ask kind of what you wish you'd learned. Um, if you were, you know, if if you knew then what you know now type thing. And 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 Eloise is the founder of the Fertility Help Hub, which if you're not already following, I highly recommend it because that I think that is kind of what you wish you you knew that you know now, isn't it? It's kind of your legacy of your experience. Um, but tell me from the top of your head. I mean, you mentioned about the insurance. I don't know whether that's something that you wish, whether that was or something that you could have looked into covering before you went or that type of logistics. But otherwise, what else would you say? Yeah, so flights, for example, I rushed into buying them during a sale and it was all down to my period and my period was late a couple of days, which sent the whole thing off. So I would say really work with your providers to work out the scheduling, maybe do flexible tickets, uh, things like that, just in case the timings don't go as planned. We What we haven't talked about is the fact that once we had our eldest daughter, we went back again and we actually created new embryos with a fresh round when she was 11 months old. old. And that was somewhat harder than the first time. I think there were so many expectations lying on it. And um, it was a it was it was a freak storm in New York over Christmas and New Year. The worst they'd seen for about 60 years. And I had friends and family coming in and out to support because I was there again for four weeks with our toddler and my husband couldn't be there for much of it. And so flights were delayed. People got stuck. My husband got stuck, couldn't get back to work. We had problems with the Airbnb we were staying in. My mum was going to come out to help me with our daughter whilst I went to have the retrieval, etc. And my granny died, so she couldn't come. So that that made it feel quite difficult logistically. But then I had the comfort of knowing the clinic, really, really um, admiring my specialist. And there's something nice about familiarity. We can never predict life, can we? And um, that's, I suppose, when you're thinking about having treatment abroad, that's so important to think about that whole idea of Murphy's Law of, you know, what, what can go wrong will go wrong. So to maybe if you can give yourself a bit of leeway at the start and end of it, I suppose, just in case. I mean, we're talking as we're coming out of a pandemic and and I know from our community, and I'm sure you've heard it in yours as well, the, the people that were considering going abroad or had have had treatment abroad and were waiting to have more treatment abroad, all the delays that have been caused just have to bide your time. Totally. And I think that's one of the hardest things people yeah. find. They want to go forward with it. But with all the tests, the restrictions, they're not knowing it, it makes it doubly hard. You talked a bit about doing some research in the UK so you could have that kind of satellite access. What would your advice be on that just in terms of people starting out? I suppose the obvious thing is to just go and ask the question if people, if you could have them work with wherever the clinic is. Advocate for yourself. 
I know that people say that and it sounds like a bit of a cliche. The team in New York were not into immunology and I'd done quite a lot of reading and I thought, well, given the amount we're spending, I'm happy to give it a whirl if it's going to make a difference. And that's why I went to get that support at Zeta West um, and had intralipids, etc. I'm not saying that that's what made it successful. There's no way of saying that. Sure. However, it made me feel, again, like I tried everything possibly in my power because the immunology blood tests did reveal that I do have a blood clotting issue which is actually not just for fertility that's something useful to know for every other aspect of my life as well and it's something that's hereditary for my mum who nearly died of a blood clot so I think that sometimes fertility tests can unravel things about your health that you didn't know. That's so interesting especially in like the vaccine that we're having Mm -hmm. to have Mm -hmm. so Wow, that's so interesting. Thank you, Eloise. It's been really interesting just hearing um, you give that kind of overview. And I know now you do, uh, like I said, a lot uh, with Fertility Help Hub um, and the kind of community that you've built there. What would you say has been the most surprising thing that you've learned from your community or that you feel about your community? I mean, one thing that I'd say is that I, I find it quite incredible that people still such big gaps in their awareness when they're coming into this trying to conceive community and it it saddens me that they're left to find it with people like us on social media rather than getting it from their GP and I still find that fascinating you know you were talking about treatment five years ago I was seven years ago the same conversations but we know there's more because we're part of it but what would you say? I think as you said finding a community who get it it doesn't necessarily always need to be just medical experts it can be people going through the same thing as well obviously you don't want to compare your situation to others but just knowing and finding people who are asking the same questions etc can be really helpful and join as many events and all amazing things that people are putting on and webinars and just get as much information as you can so you can make an informed decision and do shop around for the right the right clinic and the right fit because it makes such a difference having a team that you admire, respect, trust. I've had lots of conversations with people in the community where they've also said, don't be afraid of changing clinics. If you feel that you haven't got what you need or haven't got the support that you need, it can be scary, but there's never any, as I said, advocate for yourself. So if you want to look around and find something that might suit you better doesn't need to be clinics but whatever that might be then there is so much support out there. So Eloise there highlighted as well some of the questions that people ask her now that she's been sharing a lot more about her her own experience and and she was saying about how one of the most common is if the donor that you choose doesn't have enough vials of sperm you know for you to have more children because we've talked about that genetic connection when we were just talking before after hearing JR mm. I mean that's a whole nother thing to try and get your head around isn't it if it's donor sperm and different donors what the, what the man must mm. be feeling like yeah absolutely absolutely I mean I, it, it's so hard to even imagine those kind of conversations or how he would feel at that point and I can well understand you know with Eloise and her husband, the importance of of having, for them having the three Mm. children that were from the same donor. 
and, and what that would mean to them as a family. Well, like we say, if we've got you thinking and you've got questions, please do get in touch. We will be talking more on our Brew It Too this week on our Instagram, which is back. It's back for the rest of September at least. Um, I'm at Fertility Poddy. And I'm at Your Fertility Journey. Before we go, though, we're just going to hear another answer from our brilliant resident expert, James Nicopoulos. Ask the expert. 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 Okay, so this lady is trying to conceive number two. And she had, luckily, she had success on her first round of IVF with number one after trying for five years. They're both now 38 and have been through, sadly, failed frozen embryo transfer. The consultant has suggested it might be worth considering ERA or Emma or Alice tests to find out more about her endometrial health. She's also got PCOS and she's got low-grade endometriosis. What would you advise? It's really tricky without a little bit more detail because I think that the whole concept of the endometrial testing is that is it that women who've re- got recurrent IVF failure um, have a displaced window of opportunity where an embryo needs to be transferred. So do they need to have a little bit more progesterone, a little bit less progesterone, and the embryo go back in a day earlier or a day later? So if this lady has had an IVF success and only one failed frozen transfer, well, she's done really well in many ways that she's got a baby from one IVF cycle and the endometrial receptivity should be relatively consistent. So if it's worked before with IVF, I wouldn't then really, really be recommending doing an era test. Now, if she's had one IVF, five, five frozen, failed frozens and, and, and you know another failed IVF, then at some point you say, okay, maybe. But if it's genuinely only one or two failed frozens, it wouldn't be something I would routinely recommend at this point. Checking the endometrial microbiome, so for any sort of imbalance in the natural bacteria that live, relatively new data, you could do that as a separate entity, but I don't think necessarily at this point, unless you've had a consistent cycle failures with really good embryos, I probably wouldn't recommend an era. Would you mind explaining a little bit about those tests, James? Yeah, so so there's something called the endometrio, which is a, a, a trio of tests. One is the era that looks at the timing of transfer. Are we really putting the embryo in at the right time? The second one looks at the natural bacteria that in essence that live in, in the vagina. And the third one looks for any bacteria that shouldn't be there, um, any, any subtle infection. And obviously if there is any subtle infection, it can be treated. If there's an imbalance in the natural bacteria, you can give probiotics to try and improve that. Ask the expert. 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 So thank you so much for your support. Make sure you have subscribed to the podcast because whilst we're finishing the series at the end of September, there's going to be lots of other stuff happening on the feed. And you can go to the fertilitypodcast.com website and leave us a voice note as a review, which is a lovely new thing we've just started. Thank you so much for your support. And until the next time. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.